Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. The suitcase that they believe contained the bomb was determined to be a Samsonite Silhouette 4000 suitcase, antique copper in color. It's the forensic evidence that drove this case. Welcome to the Stratford podcast from Stratford.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. It was to that point one of the worst air disasters in history. On December 21st, 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 was carrying college students, government workers, and professionals home for the holidays. But the flight would never reach its destination. A terrorist bomb exploded, sending flaming wreckage over the town of Lockerbie, Scotland. To this day, the word Lockerbie summons images of total destruction and memories of loss for many, many people. One of them is Richard Marquise. He was the investigator in charge of finding out just what had happened, who was responsible, and then eventually, how to prosecute them. He spoke about his book, Scott Bomb, Evidence and the Lockerbie Investigation, with Stratfor's Chief Security Officer, Fred Burton. Let's go to the studio now with Richard and Fred. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dick Marquise, who has written a book called Scott Bomb, Evidence and the Lockerbie Investigation. Dick, thanks so much for being on the Stratfor podcast today. Thank you, Fred. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Dick, I know this uh, plane crash is personal to us. Uh, I know we lost agents from my organization aboard this plane crash, and I know you devoted a, a large measure of your professional career to the investigation. Looking back on this plane crash, give our listeners an overview of what took place. Well, as you certainly recall, the 1980s was a, a especially terrible time to be an American living and working overseas, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, unfortunately, even even though we had not seen uh, great numbers of terrorist attacks here in the United States, uh, Americans were being kidnapped, they were being killed, hijacked, and Pan Am 103 at the end of the 1980s just sort of served as a topper for uh, a, a terrible decade for Americans living and working overseas. And we had a whole rash of uh, aircraft hijackings and bombings leading up to that. Yes. It, in, uh, in 1984 and then again in 1986, uh, in response to that, the American Congress passed legislation that allowed the U.S. government to actually go after people who were uh, first kidnapping and uh, later killing and blowing up airplanes uh, and allowed the United States to collect evidence and if we would get our hands on these people to bring them to justice here in the United States so that somebody would pay for these horrific crimes that occurred outside our normal jurisdiction. And that was the ex extraterritorial jurisdiction that the FBI had, correct, to investigate a, a kidnapping or a murder of an American overseas? Correct. Uh, the, the legislation was passed uh, uh, that, that, that allowed us to collect evidence in kidnapping cases in 1984, and then they extended it after uh, the murder of uh, diver Robert Stedham in the TWA 847 
1986 with legislation that said you could not kill an American during the commission of a terrorist attack without some jeopardy attaching. Yeah, the importance of uh, that time frame to me is uh, significant in the history of terror because when you think back, uh, you and I know that from living in this era that just the tempo of the attacks seemed to be relentless and it was almost like we were running around uh, with our hair on fire just going from one disaster to another. Well, as as I remember the FBI, uh, working abroad was not something that we normally did and one of the things I learned uh, in the Lockerbie case was how difficult it is when you are not the person in charge or not the organization in charge of an investigation because clearly this uh, crime scene was in Scotland and the police in Scotland had a great deal of expertise and a great deal of pride and they were going to lead the investigation. And I learned a lot from working with them and it taught me a great deal for that I used throughout the rest of my FBI career. Let's talk our listeners through a bit, Dick, about what happened that night, uh, December 21st, 1988. Uh, walk us through exactly what took place predicated upon your investigative work. Well, uh, Pan Am 103 actually started as a Boeing 727 flight in Frankfurt about four, a little after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, the flight would uh, travel to London, and a number of passengers got off that plane met others in London and boarded the Maid of the Seas, a Boeing 747. Uh, that flight was scheduled to depart at 6 o'clock, left at 6.25, and at 7.03 it crashed over uh, Lockerbie. And clearly, initially, uh, you don't know at the very beginning, is this a uh, just a, a plane crash? But as we all know, and, and thankfully, uh, 747s and other planes generally just don't fall out of the sky. And it only took about four days before forensic experts could say that uh, this was uh, po- probably a terrorist attack uh, because they found remnants of high, high uh, explosives, uh, RDX and PETN, which make up a Czech uh, uh, explosive called Semtex. And we knew within four or five days, by Christmas anyway, that this was a, a bombing that needed to be investigated. And the horrific nature of this, I, I vividly recall when the plane crashed, Dick, being at uh, the State Department headquarters. Uh, it's it's late at night. It's before the holidays. You have uh, U.S. government personnel coming home on home leave. You've got a bunch of uh, students from Syracuse University. I, the, just the, uh, I remember it just being dark and dreary in Washington when we got news of what happened. And at what altitude uh, did the uh, bomb explode uh, in the uh, – in the baggage hold of uh, Pan Am 103? The the plane had just reached its cruising altitude, which was 31,000 feet. And you've flown, I'm sure that a lot of people listening today have been on airplanes. And back in the good old days before there were uh, laptops and computers and screen back televisions, uh, everybody took out a book or just getting comfortable on the airplane when it exploded 38 minutes into flight. And uh, literally no one survived, even though they tell stories about two people who were still alive when they found them. But uh, 270 people, 259 on the plane and 11 people on the ground in Lockerbie, uh, a small market town, uh, when the plane fell on the uh, the western edge of that town. Talk a little bit about the crime scene. How big was it? Had, had you ever worked a case uh, at that magnitude, Dick? I can tell you that very few people anywhere have ever worked a, a case of that magnitude. Uh, the, the chief constable 
uh, was a, a gentleman in his early 50s that was getting ready to be promoted to uh, the head of his Her Majesty's Inspectorate. He was no longer going to be the chief constable. And John Boyd decided the very first day this was probably a criminal act. And we need to make sure we collect the evidence. And he brought they brought in police officers from all over Scotland to begin to collect evidence on a crime scene that would end up to be about 845 square miles where they found things. The, the seat of the, the of the crash was in the village of Lockerbie, but there was debris scattered uh, throughout the countryside for that 845 square miles. And I can say this, that the FBI did no searching. All of the searching was done by Scottish police officers, and they did an incredible job of uh, going through the countryside, picking up evidence, documenting it, and bringing it back in to be later examined. The title of your book is Scott Bomb, Evidence in the Lockerbie Investigation. Explain to our listeners what Scott Bomb means. Well, the FBI, uh, in major cases, normally gives um, a code name to the investigation. And Scott Bomb is very simply Scottish bombing. Uh, like Oklahoma City was known as Oak Bomb because of Oklahoma City. But we, we would normally just take a, a code name, assign it to that case, so somebody wouldn't have to worry about a series of numbers and just say, I'm working on Scott Bomb. Everybody would know uh, exactly what you're talking about. Dick, explain a little bit about how the FBI works a major crash investigation like this, the, the scope of the people involved, not only between headquarters and the forensics and the admin help uh, – Talk us through just that sheer volume of personnel that's working this kind of case. Well, I will speak to what happened in 1988, and and I will tell you, based on my experience, I've been retired for 17 years, but uh, the FBI would handle a case like this very differently today. When I when I look back to the origins of the extraterritorial investigations. Um, normally, the FBI would go abroad. They would probably touch base with the regional security officer of the embassy, perhaps the uh, the local station chief of the CIA, uh, the ambassador, talk to some police contacts and work with them. But it would not be major. Was, we were not really geared up to work a major case that would occur overseas. And as a result of that, we did a lot of learning. We learned a whole bunch of things that I know they would not do the same way today. But um, we sent FBI agents initially to Frankfurt because that's where the flight started, to uh, Lockerbie. We sent a couple to London because there had to be investigation conducted there. They all came out of the Washington field office where investigations in the Washington area are worked. Um, But we would send agents as needed to these other places to work with uh, local authorities. In looking back over the case, Dick, is there anything you would have done differently today? Oh, a lot of things. <laughs> but when, when I think back, when you relate this case to something like the East Emb- the East African Embassy bombings in right. 1998, the FBI literally sent uh, hundreds of agents there because the, the governments of Tanzania and Kenya believed that they were not as, I guess, technically capable of handling uh, major bombings like that, and they requested help. Now, when you put this shoe on the other foot and you say that, okay, this crime happened in Scotland, which was part of the United Kingdom, 
Um, when the SO13, the counterterrorism squad for Metropolitan Police in London, showed up in Lockerbie, the Scottish police sent them home. And they said, this is not England, this is Scotland. We're in charge. And it was a whole different mindset. And probably if the FBI had sent 300 agents to Scotland, they would have sent 299 of them home. <laughs> probably. It's, it's a whole different uh, time. I think things would be done very differently today uh, as opposed to then because we just didn't – we didn't know the police in Scotland. They didn't know us. It took a lot of feeling out of each other to work these kinds of cases that have unfortunately become much more common over the last 20 years. Yeah, isn't that the case? Uh, and looking at this investigation, I know you spent so many years uh, in the weeds with this case, Dick, and I've written about it in the past, and there's a tremendous amount of interest. Who do you think was responsible for the bombing? Well, if if I had to make a, in 1980, say early 1989, if I had to make an intelligence case for the National Security Council to go tell the president what should we do, um, I would have made a case that it was probably Iran that sponsored it. It was probably a group called the Popular Front for, for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, the PFLPGC, that somehow carried out the bombing. Because uh, in the very early days, all we had was intel and what, what you could interpret from some things that had happened in Europe over the months before uh, the bombing. A group of Palestinian terrorists had been arrested in Germany and they had bombs uh, designed to be used against aviation built into Toshiba radios. Well, we had a Toshiba radio uh, that was used in this bombing. It was a different model than what was used, but there was a lot of speculation that it was the Palestinian group that did this on behalf of Iran. But as we started to collect the evidence, the evidence just kept pointing to Libya. It, it pointed to Libyan intelligence agents. Now, there's still, to this day, speculation that, well, the Libyans didn't have anything to do with this. Well, there's way too much circumstantial. There's no direct evidence, but way too much circumstantial evidence to say it was Libyan intelligence uh, based on things that were found uh, at the crash site and evidence that was collected afterwards. We never collected any evidence. And that was really the reason for the title of my book. Because there's a lot of people that could make the intelligence case that it was not Libya that did it. But it's the evidence, it's the forensic evidence that drove this case that led us to indict two Libyans, even though we know there were at least another handful of people that were involved. But we never had any evidence to connect them to, to the attack. We'll get back to Richard Marquise and his experience investigating Pan Am Flight 103 in just one moment. Although the events in Marquise's book took place 30 years ago, the lessons learned in his investigation still apply, such as making sure to monitor and surveil terrorist organizations well ahead of time, maintaining strong cooperation between host nation forces and intelligence services, and also pooling assets to combat terrorism effectively. Stratfor Enterprise and Stratfor ThreatLens help corporate security leaders keep their focus on identifying, anticipating, and mitigating risks that emerging threats pose to their people, assets, and interests around the world. Clients rely on Stratfor to pinpoint evolving global events that will be significant to their organizations so that they can forecast and implement protective measures with confidence. If you're not already a Stratfor member, 
You can learn more at stratfor.com slash enterprise. Now back to Richard Marquise and Fred Burton. Just to recap, uh, initially the PFLPGC, which would, would be Ahmed Jabril's group, if memory serves me correct, was suspected of carrying this out with uh, the witting support and perhaps help by Iran. But as the FBI forensics played out, it it leaned more towards uh, direct Libyan involvement based upon the evidence that you would have submitted in a U.S. court of law. Is that correct? Absolutely. The the uh, federal grand jury met in Washington, D.C., and the evidence that was collected was presented to them. And up until, I'd say, mid-1991, I'm sorry, mid-1990, mid so two, almost a, about a year and a half after the bombing, we had zero evidence to connect anybody to this, but a lot of speculation. Um, and I think one of the, the big problems, and this occurred both in the UK and in the US, when the, the Attorney General then, Bill Barr, the current Attorney General, uh, announced that it was two Libyan intelligence officers who were going to be indicted. The media was shocked, and a lot of the intelligence community was shocked because they had all written that it was the PFLPGC. There had been intelligence assessments written uh, in Washington and in London saying it was uh, the Palestinians that carried this attack out because uh, of a revenge that Iran wanted because of a shootdown of uh, Iran Air Flight 655 over uh, the Gulf in uh, July of 1988, and 290 Iranians were killed. And obviously, Iran had a real strong motive, but so did Muammar Gaddafi. In looking at the investigation, let's talk a little bit about the evidence. What do you think that smoking gun was, Dick? Well, as I said, the, in the early days, there really was not much. The, the evidence collection done all by Scottish police officers was extremely uh, labor intensive. It was time consuming. And you worked around Washington enough to remember that people in this town want uh, answers. Yes. They don't, they don't want you to tell me a year from now who did something. They want the answers today. And not that the Scottish police did not. They put tons of resources on this, but they went out into this huge crime scene and they collected things. And in those days, uh, well, in the, the month of January, uh, the day in Scotland is about four hours long because the sun doesn't come up until nine o'clock and it goes down about about two thirty. It's a very short work day. They're collecting the evidence and they're processing it in a laboratory in England. And all this was time consuming. And we would ask them, we'll send agents over to help you with the crime scene. Nope, we're going to do that. We'll send agents from our laboratory to come over and help you look at the evidence. No, nope, we've got a guy doing that. So it was extremely, extremely time consuming. And it took a very long time before the evidence started to become clear. So, I'll, I'll summarize very quickly what how it came about. In uh, about the 25th of December is when they discovered a baggage for the frame of a baggage container that had the explosive Semtex on it, the remnants of it. Inside that baggage container were going to be a number of bags, most of them coming from the flight from Frankfurt. Contained in that was a a Samsonite suitcase that we would find out. It took us about six months to figure that out. There was a fragment of a circuit board found in that baggage container that went to a Toshiba radio. And then when they start to collect pieces of evidence on the ground, they're finding pieces of clothing and 
pieces of a suitcase. And the suitcase that they believe contained the bomb was determined to be a Samsonite Silhouette 4000 suitcase, antique copper in color. And this suitcase was identified in about, about six months after the bombing. The radio, just a couple of months. Well, then we're starting to find clothing during the summer of 1989. And the clothing, a lot of it has manufacturer's labels in it coming from Malta. And we go to a, a clothing company because there's a lot number on some of the clothing. And we go to a clothing manufacturer who sold that lot number to a local shopkeeper in Malta. That shopkeeper in the fall of 1989 gives us an artist rendition of what this person looked like that bought the clothes. He said he had a Libyan accent. So this was our first real connection to Libya. We're still looking at the Palestinians. Well, as we get a little bit further along, we're collecting more evidence, and there's another fragment of clothing that has blasted into it another uh, fragment of a circuit board. That circuit board is matched by an FBI forensic examiner uh, with the help of the CIA uh, to two timers seized in Africa, one in Togo in 1986 and the second one seized in Senegal in early uh, 1988 in the possession of two Libyan intelligence officers. So all of a sudden, we're starting to find this, and we track down the manufacturer of this circuit board. And it's a it's a firm in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, called Mebo. And Mebo is well-known to intelligence agencies. They've been working for Libyan intelligence for a number of years, making them various things for their military. And the owners of Mebo tell us that in 1986 – Shortly after the U.S. raid in Tripoli, the Libyans are trying to develop a timer that they say they want to use in their war with a neighboring country in Africa. I think it was Chad. But at any rate, the uh, Mebo delivers to them 20 timers in between 1986 and 1987. Well, we find out later that in late late 1988, right before the bombing, the Libyans are looking very hard to get one of those timers back because they don't have any anymore. And they get a hold of Mebo to see if they can make them one. Mebo doesn't have one, but they do end up with, with one of the timers. We think the timer actually had come from uh, one of the ones in Africa uh, that, that that had not been seized, that there was a leftover one. We're not 100% certain where it came from. There are only 20 of these ever made, these timers that were in the bomb. Well, in the meantime, a couple years go by, and we're beginning to start to talk about sharing information. There were, I could talk for four days about the lack of sharing and lack of <laughs> cooperation. Um, and you remember those days well. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, it, it really magnifies itself on the international stage. And, and yes. Dick, uh, what I thought was also interesting is uh, uh, one of our agents uh, it picked up that Mebo timer in Lome, Togo, uh, after a Libyan-backed coup and had the wherewithal to bring it back to Washington so it could be databased, and, and therefore it just shows you the international complexity to a case like this. Absolutely. Uh, it was Jim Casey, as I remember. Yes, it was Jim. Uh, we thought so much of him, we made him an FBI agent. <laughs> I knew you were going <laughs> to rub that in, but at the time that that evidence reco- was recovered, he was a State Department agent, just for the record. Okay, absolutely. (laughs) Let's look at this Libyan nexus. So uh, you get two Libyans indicted. How come nobody's ever brought to justice in a U.S. court of law for this case? That's something that still infuriates me. 
Very good question. And, and I can, I will tell you this, that when I used to meet with Bob Mueller, when he was running the criminal division, uh, and I would go to conferences in Scotland and I would meet with their, their Lord, uh, Lord advocate, who's their attorney general and their chief constables. And we would talk about that. Nobody ever wanted to talk about where's the trial going to be held? Because this was always the, the, you know, if you recall, those statutes were passed not to supplant local law, right? But to supplement. It was if you don't want to prosecute, we will. If right. you don't want to investigate, we will. Well, obviously, the police in Scotland, having their pride, uh, we want to. They wanted to prosecute. So we, when we investigated the case, we always investigated at the higher standard. And I just use something simple as photo spreads. As I recall, uh, the FBI could do six pictures in a photo spread, and that would meet uh, our standards for federal court. In Scotland, you had to have 12 photographs. And we always, if we showed photo spreads, we showed 12. Uh, everything we did was to the higher standard. So wherever prosecution was going to take place, uh, we would have the standard met for that court. Well, I always knew just going to these meetings, unless, you know, a tidal wave wiped Scotland off the map, they would prosecute the case if they could have that happen. Well, clearly there's a death penalty clause for killing Americans as a result of a terrorist attack. That's right. And Muammar Gaddafi was never going to turn his citizens over to a country that had the death penalty on the table. If you recall, people such as Yasser Arafat and, um, we're all very, very interested and active in this. The, the United Nations was interested in this. And as a result of all the agreements that way above my pay grade, way, way above it, uh, they made the decision that a prosecution would take place in Scotland. That does not mean, I will tell you, that the day that they were indicted, I got a phone call from some special ops guy in Delta wanting to know, can you give us this guy's address? I have no doubt there were thoughts somewhere in the United States government that let's go get these guys and bring them here for trial. Sure. But based on my conversations with the Scots, because we brought a witness to the United States during the case, they told us that if we ever tried to arrest somebody in international waters like we did with Fawaz Yunus right. in 1987, I think. It was 87, correct. Uh, and brought him back for for, for the same charge. Uh, they said, if you ever try to do something like that in this case, we'll never give you the evidence. So we were all disappointed that the case did not come to a U.S. court because I'm convinced to this day that there would have been two convictions and not one. That was always one of the real heartburns that we had, that only one person was convicted out of the two that were indicted and tried. And the complexity of these international cases uh, for our listeners' benefit, it's its really hard to fathom. There's so many cooks in the kitchen and there's so many different people involved. And, and thinking about this, Dick, what lessons do you think were learned uh, as a result of that? And uh, are travelers today much safer based upon some of the hard lessons and tragedies we learned, such as the crash of Pan Am 103? Well, I'll talk about lessons learned first. I mean, clearly, and I, I can speak for me. I like to hope that the FBI learned some lessons as well about how you handle the major case. But the, the I was a J. Edgar Hoover FBI agent, and 
I like to think that I, I conformed. I was a conformist and I did what the FBI told me to do. And, and a lot of that was unfortunately, oh, you don't need to share. You're the FBI. You collect. You don't need to share. And I'm not saying that that happened every time because I worked with a lot of cops and we shared information. But I think institutionally, we, and I can say that pretty broadly, because when I taught cops after I retired from the FBI and I go out and speak to state and local police officers, I said, look at your own departments. Uh, you don't do a good job of sharing. Patrol doesn't necessarily share with the detective bureau. I said, we all have sharing issues. It's my case. I don't need to share. Well, I learned what happens when we finally sat down with the agency, with MI5, with the Scottish police, and we said, we're going to be 100% transparent. Everything has to be shown. We have to do everything to make sure that we're transparent. And I've often, and, and I learned what happens when the FBI is involved and people are, an, are asking questions and I don't have all the answers because I'm not in charge and I'm not making all the decisions. But as a result of that, I like to think the last half of my FBI career that sharing became a key, key component of my career. And unfortunately, we had to learn the hard lesson of 9-11 to, to show us that, well, we really didn't master it yet. And if we haven't mastered it by this point, uh, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Uh, but certainly th that, that to me, the sharing is the most significant lesson I think that, that I learned and I think we all learned as a result of that case. And I know that MI5 traveled the world after this. They talked about the Lockerbie model where we bring intelligence and we bring in law enforcement from all entities and across all, all spectrums to sit down and share information for the greater good, because that's what we're in it for, to keep people safe. But to answer your second question, are people safer today? Uh, I'm not sure, although, although I'm in the process of reading uh, your book, Ghost, and obviously living in Lebanon in the 1980s, it was a very unsafe place. But there's still a lot of, and you've been to some of them, and so have I, a lot of very unsafe places left in our world. I like to think that with TSA, with what we've done here in the United States, that we've done a pretty good job of making it safer for people to travel. Um, but I'm not 100 percent sure because I'm still not 100 percent sure that we share. And I say that, that that's the broader way that we share uh, quite as good as we need to to keep people safe. Uh, not just aviation travel, but uh, traveling around the globe and, and traveling as we do even around the United States. I think that's a good way to end this podcast, Dick. And uh, for our listeners that want to know the truth in what happened with the bombing of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, I encourage you to read Dick Marquise's book, Scott Bomb, Evidence and the Lockerbie Investigation. Thank you for being on Stratfor Talks today, Dick. Uh, Fred, thank you. Thank you for everything that you've done in your life and what you continue to do at Stratfor. You're very kind to say that. Thank you so much, Dick. Great. You have a great day. Thank you. Thanks once again for joining us for this conversation with Stratfor's Chief Security Officer, Fred Burton, and Richard Marquise, author of Scott Bomb, Evidence and the Lockerbie Investigation. If you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to visualize and anticipate the areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com enterprise. 
We'd also love to hear your suggestions about who Fred Burton should interview next. Please send your ideas to podcast at stratfor.com. And also don't forget to leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We do appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Ben Sheen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.